This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we've got something special. It's an episode from another podcast called Youth Today News. Over the past few months, Crosscut collaborated with the nonprofit organization Youth Today on a three-part series about youth homelessness in Washington state. In this episode, reporter Elizabeth Whitman and producer Sam Leeds follow one woman's journey through Washington's foster care system. Janelle Braxton is now 30, but she's still reckoning with the instability she experienced growing up, as well as with the way she feels the system failed her family. You can listen to all of the episodes and read written articles in this series by visiting crosscut.com or youthtoday.org. You can also search for Youth Today News wherever you get your podcasts. This series was made possible in part by support from the Rakes Foundation. Crosscut and Youth Today maintain editorial control. Okay, here's the episode. Home was never a place. One woman's life in Washington foster care. I made this for my dad when I was like in second grade, so I'm surprised I still have it. Yeah, this is a Father's Day card that I made him. And somehow it it survived all my moves and all the different homes that I lived in. So this is the oldest piece of thing I had for my childhood. This is Janelle Braxton. I'll be 30 tomorrow. And I have lived experience of the foster care system. Right now I do a lot of advocacy work for foster youth and homeless youth. I do work with Passion to Action. It's a youth and alumni advisory board to the state of Washington of DCYF. Janelle's work with the Washington State Department of Children, Youth, and Families is informed by the many years she spent in foster care, starting in second grade. When we met to talk in September, Janelle brought a memento from that time, a well-worn photo album filled with drawings, cards, and photos with their edges yellowing. This was made by my... My foster sister is me, the baby. Here's my mom and my dad. And my mom and my dad were getting married here, and my brother was in her belly. Jacob, my younger brother. And that's Jacob again. This was a birthday party. One of the only birthday parties I had when I was a kid. (laughs) Yeah, this is my foster family, one of my foster families. My brother's around here somewhere. Home was never a place. It was always where was where my family was. So um, I was grateful to have my brother stay with me. Janelle is still working through the experiences foster care left her with, the struggle to build stability for herself, and the effort it has taken her family to come back to each other. If the state is going to take your kids away from you, they should also like work on bringing them back into your family because there's supposed to be a plan when you exit care. And I missed that. I missed building my own support and knowing where I was going to go after uh, I turned 18 or 21. And once that hits, they just don't care anymore and they drop you. And it's like, well, <laughs> and here, welcome homelessness. And that part sucks. I'm Sam J. Leeds, and this is the Youth Today podcast. We're bringing you the third and final episode of this three-part series on how public funds are being used to address youth homelessness in Washington state. Our first two episodes focused on the pilots for Lifeline Washington and HSYNC, programs built to address gaps in the resources for youth and young adults touched by systems of care. But my co-reporter Elizabeth Whitman and I both knew this series would be incomplete 
without hearing directly from the people who these programs were created to serve, people like Janelle. So today, that's what we're doing. When we first connected with Janelle to talk about setting up an interview, she was enthusiastic about speaking with us. She wrote, I'm looking forward to sharing my experience. I truly believe this topic needs to be spoken about more in depth, and I hope I can provide ways for people to support young people in these situations. Janelle's experience with foster care began in the early 2000s. She moved between more than eight homes before the age of 21. After she exited foster care, Janelle felt she wasn't set up to take care of herself. She said she wasn't taught to build a budget, pay her rent, or apply for an apartment. And after a particularly traumatic experience, she found herself staying on couches with friends and family. Unfortunately, in Washington state, this is a common experience. One recent study found that youth involved in foster care in the state were two to four times more likely than their peers to face homelessness or housing instability. And Black and Indigenous youth like Janelle are overrepresented among both foster and homeless youth. While Janelle was in foster care, her mother Deborah Braxton also struggled to navigate the many requirements the state set for her to find her own housing and for her family to be reunited. Years later, Janelle and Deborah have worked to rebuild a strong relationship, the kind where Janelle can call her mom anytime, even in the middle of the night. For the rest of the episode, you won't hear much from me or Elizabeth. Instead, we're turning the mic over to Janelle and Deborah to share their family's experience with the foster care system and what they want to see change. As a note before we get started, please listen with care as Janelle and Deborah will be speaking about family separation, self-harm, and sexual abuse. Here's Deborah. Uh, I'm Deborah Braxton. I'm Janelle Braxton's mother. I'm uh, Alaskan Aleut native, but I was born and raised in Seattle and uh, had my kids up here in Seattle and Linwood. I had four. My biological family and I moved around between Seattle and Everett, always crashing at a relative's place or living in out of a car at a shelter. Eventually we got our own place, a Section 8 apartment, two, three bedroom, and... Uh, the kids were able to play outside like kids would do. We got a dog named Bandit, a blue healer. But it didn't last very long. We were chronically homeless, but we managed to stay together for the most part. Sometimes we would go to a women's shelter and my dad and older brother couldn't stay. So they would have to, because they didn't like the men's shelter, it was very unsafe. So they stayed together in, the, in our car. I went into foster care when I was in second grade. The social workers came to the house saying we were being investigated. We had 43 days to um, collect ourselves and enter programs like uh, mental health treatment for me, mental health for the children. And then after not even 43 days had passed by, which is their initial investigation, they came and removed Janelle from school. I remember my teacher getting a call. It was during reading time, and I hated reading, so I always made sure I was, like, doing something else during that time. And I was watching her expression on her face, and she was excited at first, and she answered the call, and then her face dropped. And she looked over, and she saw me looking at her, and she's like, you know, your mom's here to pick you up for a dentist appointment. And I got so excited because I didn't have to be in school anymore. 
So I, I hurried up. I got ready to go. And she's like, before you go, she gave me the tightest hug and said, you're important and you matter. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. Um, and she cried. And I didn't, know, I didn't understand at the time. And they didn't tell me they did it until it was over. I remember walking down the hallway into the office and I was looking around for my mom and I didn't see her. Instead, I was a social worker and she come, she comes out and she's like, hi, um, Janelle. And I was like, yeah. She's like, um, you need to step in here. We need to talk. I was like, no, my mom's supposed to pick me up. I need to, I need to go. And she's like, no, we just said that to get you out of the, the room. And I was like, okay. And she sat me down in the room um, and told me, you're going to go into foster care. And I didn't understand what those words meant. Um, I was little. I was like nine, eight. And um, to me, that meant a form of jail. Like, I was used to seeing my dad get arrested multiple times because my parents had uh, alcohol abuse. And so I was thinking that I was going to jail because I didn't eat my veggies or I didn't go to bed in time or I didn't go I didn't wake up for school or I didn't take a shower. I, so I just kept thinking it was my fault. And um, all I can think of at the time was um, leave my little brother. He doesn't deserve to go. Um, <laughs> um, I said, I'll do his time for him. And she looked at me and she's like, oh, honey, that's not how this works. Kids didn't understand it, I don't believe. Janelle didn't get to say goodbye. Later on, they came and got Jacob when I was in the shelter in Linwood. Jacob kind of went along with it. Yeah. He didn't have a fit. Neither, I don't believe any, either one of them had a fit, which was pretty brave of them. I was fortunate enough, the first home that I moved into was also able to take in my younger brother. It was a huge house. Um, I remember looking on the doorbell when the social worker brought us there, and it had all their names on a little placard. And um, I felt very odd and different. And it was a white family, so I was even more confused because I'm like, I'm not used to this kind of food. I'm not used to this type of schedule. And then I had my own room for the first time. and my own bed and it just felt like such a shift that I felt like I was in a different country, but it was just a different part of the state I've never been to. The foster mom, when I was in the car with her, said, you can call me mom. And that was my first experience with a foster parent. And I was like, but I have a mom. My mom's not dead. Like, I'm not looking to replace her. That was my entry into foster care. Initially, I couldn't see her because she was way up in Arlington, I believe. And after she got placed and closer to the to home, away from their their agency, we got to see her more often. I think it was once a once a month and thereabouts. Never enough. I was real happy to see her and her brother. And uh, at one point, we gave we brought gifts, toys that they could play with. As a kid, I absolutely love math. I'm a type 1 diabetic, and so I had to always carb count. So I 
loved doing math problems, figuring things out. It, make, it gave me a sense of, of peace and ease to like, oh, this, this is a problem, but there's a solution. Janelle was three and a half when she came down with diabetes, type 1, insulin dependent. She required constant monitoring and checking up blood sugar. Six times a year, she'd end up in the hospital for high blood sugars. I would get medical records from the children's hospital. And what I didn't like, I would let them know. And it got to the point where they told my husband, Steve, they didn't like me because <laughs> I, I kept them honest. I was only there in that home for less than a year. I remember she had signed me up for camp. And then when I came back, I saw her and she said, um, your brother moved with your Nana. Do you want to go with him? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. Like, that's my home. She was sad to see me go, but I, I could not, not be with him. So I moved in with my Nana and I, I didn't find a reason why we were going into care until I lived with my Nana. And she said, it's because your parents are alcoholics and they couldn't keep a job. They couldn't take care of you guys. You kept missing a lot of school, um, stuff like that. So she was the first person to tell me. But it didn't make me love my parents any less. If anything, it made me realize that, you know, they're having their own struggles and they were coping in a in an unhealthy way. And so when I was younger, I told myself, I'm not going to be like that. I'm never going to drink. And so I didn't realize how hard it was going to be until I got older what they were facing. I was in shelter for maybe a year before I got my Section 8 housing in Tacoma, Pierce County. I had to do counseling. I had to do treatment, alcohol treatment. I was seeking services because I was court-ordered to do so, and uh, it was in, in order to have my kids returned. I also did parenting classes. And the thing about my services, the one up in Snohomish County, the Indian unit, the lady named Lucy was our social worker. She wouldn't help me. I had to seek out my own services. And I would look uh, under um, titles where it said CPS uh, authorized. It's like uh, an eight-hour day, busting it here and there to get to these places, driving when I had the car. I am indigenous, I'm Alaskan native and um, black Jamaican. So I felt a sense of self-identity through culture. Living with my Nana, I got to experience what it's like to have that side of the family's type of food. She made homemade food all the time. She taught us how to cook and stuff. And she also took me to powwow events and seeing Native people in their element just gave me a sense of pride. And so seeing that made me feel connected a little bit more um, and understanding of a little bit more about my own identity of who I am. My Nana taught me the notes on the keyboard and from there I, I learned how to play and I loved it. Whenever I had strong emotions or I was going through something that was a way for me to cope and to feel better, I know how to play five different instruments. Violin, viola, cello, clarinet, and piano. And I got myself out of PE in high school because I did band, jazz band, and orchestra. 
there's a lot of expression when it comes to music that I can't find with words, I can with notes. My Nana, her parenting style is very different than that foster mom and my biological parents. She grew up with a, a background with a family of being in the military, in the Navy, so she had strict ways of raising children, um, a lot of unfair punishments. We lived with her for a few years together um, until I intentionally caused self-harm and um, had to go to Seattle Children's Hospital. And it was more than just once that I did that. They would say a minimum of what they were going through. The, the truthful stuff I would find out through the grapevine. I don't know. I, I'd find out she was in the hospital. I just had that knack. A social worker there asked me, do you feel safe at home? I said no. And um, they removed me but left my brother there. And that's when we got separated. And that that hurt too, not being able to live with him. I was happy at the time, but wasn't realizing sort of the damage I was going to do by creating like a rift by not being with my brother anymore. He was at camp at the time when I moved and he came home. He told me years later that he's kind of, he was really sad and confused and he really missed his big sister. So I was like, I'm sorry. Like I had to do what I had to do to get, to make myself safe. After I got discharged from the hospital, got moved with a different family. And I was told, since my brother was still living with her, that I couldn't call him or talk to him for a period of time. And that made it even harder to adjust because I just wanted to let him know, like, I'm okay, I'm fine. That was the home that helped me flourish with music. They encouraged me with math and writing. The grandpa there was the first one that I had met, and he bought me the viola, but when I moved homes, he told me, that's yours, it's yours to keep, we bought it for you. And I had to leave that home because I felt unsafe with the foster dad, not the grandparents, they were lovely. He sent some creepy vibes he's done and said things that weren't okay. It was enough to make me feel very uncomfortable. I'd talk to the kids and tell them what I, what I was doing and what, was, what I was going through, and they'd tell me what they were doing and going through. And once I found out that it wasn't acceptable, then I would bring it up with uh, my lawyer and, and CPS. I, I would take a problem, go to sleep on it, and then come up with the solution the next day, and I'd write it down on my sticky notes <laughs> and tag it for another day. I would bring that up to her and say, I don't feel safe. And my mom was so like, nope, that's not okay. And so she helped me call a social worker and say, I don't feel safe here. I don't want to go back home there. Um, I need to move. And so I did. The next family I moved in with after 2008 was in Everett. And I absolutely adore this family. I still do. They're amazing. The foster dad, Kevin, ah, I love Kevin. He's passed away since, but he always taught me some very uh, valuable lessons. They took us up to the mountains and they had quad bikes. They taught me how to, how to ride a quad bike. 
So I started riding the quad bike. And my foster sister and I were going around the bend at the time, and she was riding behind me because I was in charge of driving that time. And I forgot which was brake and which one was gas. And as we were turning, I sped up instead of stopping, and I ran right into a tree, crashed, and then, like, blacked out for a second and woke up, and no one broke any bones or anything. We were just kind of bruised a little bit. And when we got back to the campsite, the quad was broken, and um, Kevin was with us, and he saw what happened. And he He's like, oh, man, well... It's just a it's just a material thing, you know. It's not any as long as you guys are safe. And I was like, I'm never riding a quad again. That was scary. I don't know. And he's like, No, you are. You're gonna get back on that and ride again. You gotta face your fears, you know, just because you messed up doesn't mean that you should stop. He's like, That's part of life. Should I keep going and keep trying? I was like, huh. Okay, I thought you were gonna be really mad at me. He's like, no, that was an honest mistake. Why would I get mad at that? And I think I just got so used to getting bad reactions from people about simple mistakes that making that mistake and being told it's okay and get up and try again was it was life changing. I went from victim to uh, got my personal power back. Having the stamina, the stick to itness, stubbornness, uh, creativeness to seek out information. And basically, I did it for the kids. As soon as we were taken, my mom sobered up. She went to her AA classes. She did everything that the courts were asking of her. They made it really hard on her to try to get her kids back. But she worked so hard, and I'm so proud of her. She had to face her own demons, and she did, and she got sober, she got stable, she got housing, um, and she was still taking care of my older brother. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about them and how everybody's relationship is, is, contributes and uh, is important. They worked hard to keep uh, the family separated. Not all parents are able to seek services and complete them because they give out. They give up. And uh, the ones that stick to it aren't rewarded to get family reunification. It's like they were the parent. You're never good enough. You didn't complete enough. Well, I, I'd done all I could think I could do. My lawyer said that to the judge when I got done, she should be commended. Our last court date was 2009. Jacob and I got him back. He he would walk all the way to my house from where he lived, Ravenna, Shoreline. He wanted back home. The judge allowed it. His attorney said, well, he obviously wants to go back, so we'll let him. And he was a handful. My biological sister went and got her foster parent license, and um, then I got to go live with her. I thought that would be better. Uh, and it it was hard. It was an adjustment. <laughs> I ended up leaving my sister's care. We butted heads too much, and so I thought I could be independent and do things on my own that I was adult enough. So I had a independent living case manager to help me find an apartment 
and uh, that program helped pay for rent. I was 18 at the time. When I started living on my own, that's where the financial stability would have been helpful because I didn't do a good job with saving money for food. I didn't do a good job with, you know, setting aside money for rent. Rent always got covered, but it would have been more helpful to learn how to do it myself. Uh, at the time, my caseworker for independent living would sign the checks or fill out the money orders and send it to send it in without me knowing how to do that process. But uh, I had a traumatic event happen. I uh, was sexually assaulted in my own home and uh, ended up not being okay, which makes sense. And so I just didn't want to live in that house anymore. I didn't want to be there anymore. So uh, we moved all my stuff out and I went and lived with my biological dad. I just, I couldn't find stability anymore. Like, I uh, couldn't um, really hold down a job. So I would end up crashing on a family member's couch often. Luckily, I didn't have to sleep on the streets, but I still have to move around a lot because I couldn't stay in one area for too long. I was really lacking the knowledge of how to be independent in finding my own home, like my own spot again. The foster care system could do a better job with helping young people exit the foster care system, make sure that they are prepared. I know that um, independent living helps them, but it's not totally well-rounded enough. I call it hand-holding, where they do a lot of the stuff for you instead of you doing part of it or doing it with them. And uh, I think it's important to show them how to do it, but also give them that space and opportunity to do it themselves alone. We don't get enough of that that um, space to do it and to make mistakes and to learn from them. I don't know if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably still be stubborn and up in their face. If I knew about the reunification, I think I would have pushed for that more, but I didn't know about it. I think what would have been really beneficial after exiting care would have been family reunification and counseling um, to help us just to understand where each other's experiences and to know that it happened to us all. Because it took a while for me to be able to like open up and talk to my mom about certain things and to talk to my dad about certain things um, just because I didn't know how to. But um, eventually we got there and I think it only brought us closer. And I think that if it had happened sooner, our relationship would be, you know, the same now, but like stronger, definitely sooner. We have family get-togethers for birthdays, for holidays. Yeah, it's pretty cool. She sought out a program that helped her get a place to live that pays her rent. And she has a dog. <laughs> She's got a husky. The fact that she, she has the dog and it's still alive, no offense. <laughs> And she's doing good. I don't think she's ever been to the hospital that I know of. And she's stable. She has a stable home. I'm real proud of Janelle.
the state definitely can benefit by having um, people with lived experience of the foster care system or homelessness at the table, have an equal sit- seat at the table and not just asking them later down the road. Actually have them work for, alongside you so that you can figure out these issues a lot sooner. The first nonprofit work I started doing, advocating for foster youth and homeless youth is with the Mockingbird Society. The first bill that uh, I worked on and got to pass was the Sibling Connections Act. And I was really proud of that one because uh, I was trying to emphasize from my personal experience how important it is to keep, you know, the connections with your siblings while you're in care, even if you're not in the same home. The Department of Children, Youth, and Families is creating a position peer adolescent liaison. So it's someone that is supposed to work with the young person who's transitioning out of foster care into adulthood. That person is supposed to be the liaison between that young person and everyone who works for that young person. And um, I think that is a great, huge step towards making sure that that young person's voice is being heard, but also, like, they are also hiring people with lived experience, not just people with degrees. And so... um, I was actually what I'm looking forward to applying to. I already applied last year and got to the interview and, and I was excited to feel uh, validated and being seen and heard in the work that I've been doing because uh, I didn't finish my degree. I've just been doing a lot of, you know, self-advocacy type of work or nonprofit work. But they had to shut it down because they didn't have the full funding. They wanted it to be a permanent job and not just part-time. So uh, hopefully... Uh, next year, it'll be open. I wish I could tell my younger self, um, you are enough being you. I used to call myself chameleon because whenever I moved to a different family, I tried to be as likable or as favorable as possible so that, you know, I'm not seen in a negative way. I just want to be liked, so I, I think I craved either attention or love that was missing. I'm just glad and fortunate that my tribe, Kuala Longan, has yearly gatherings, and we just had one this, this past summer. So we get together and we see each other for a little bit and share food. But I wish I know my language a little bit more. My tribe has camps, and I think there's someone teaching the language. Um, so hopefully maybe next year I can go and learn how to speak it. Finding myself, finding my voice, and being happy with who I was as a person, that was my biggest struggle, and I wasn't able to um, do that until I met my partner, and he um, he, st- he would stand up for me when I couldn't do it for myself. He's like, you do all this work for all these other foster youth, why not for yourself? And so that helps me shift gears to be like, you know what? I just got to think of myself as the person I'm advocating for. And that made it easier. I wrote a poem about it. The state is, um, they ripped my roots from my grounds of soil that I was used to and put me somewhere new and foreign. And I didn't know how to establish myself. And so they also don't teach you how to find your own individuality, to find your own voice. And so it's easier if you don't know who you are as a person for them to do whatever they want with you. And then you just get used to a lifestyle of 
having your stuff in a garbage bag or not having things unpacked. It took me over three years before I started putting pictures up because I'm like, in my head, I'm going to move soon. I'm not going <laughs> to, we're not going to stay here, but I've been there for almost four years now. And I'm like, you know what, it's time to unpack. And I did, and that was like a huge burden that has been lifted. This episode of Youth Today was produced by me, Sam J. Leeds. The reporting was done by me and Elizabeth Whitman. And the story editor was Jacob Jones. This episode was created by Youth Today and Crosscut. Youth Today is a nonprofit independent news site for people who care about and work with children and youth. Visit them at youthtoday.org. Crosscut is a service of Cascade Public Media. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Thanks for joining us for this three-part series. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode from Youth Today News was reported by Elizabeth Whitman and produced by Sam Leeds. The story editor was Jacob Jones. Learn more about Youth Today at youthtoday.org. Find all of the podcast episodes as well as written articles on crosscut.com and youthtoday.org. Or search for Youth Today News wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the podcast episode we played today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.